Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more. You know, basically when an elephant is a baby, they tie them to something very heavy and then the baby will continue to pull and pull and pull and, you know, his leg will bleed and then he'll eventually give up. Because he thinks, I'll never be able to get free. And once he eventually gives up, he's a huge adult elephant. You know, he could lift a truck if he felt like it. But he's tied to just like a peg in the ground because he stopped pulling. That was me. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Labyrinths. No, this episode is not about elephants, but it is about subjugation and freedom and unlearning learned helplessness. The chains we'll be talking about are not made of iron, but of cloth. The prison we'll be exploring is built of a million minute cultural cues, parental shame, domestic violence, and divine scripture. It's a labyrinth designed to shield your eyes from the exit right in front of you, to make you think it's your own choice to stay confined. My name is Yasmin Mohammed. I grew up in Vancouver, Canada as a fundamentalist Muslim in a fundamentalist family. Yasmin Mohammed is the author of Unveiled, How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam. We consider ourselves Western liberals. And if you do as well, then this episode may be a challenge for you because we'll be digging into some controversial territory and confronting our own moral failures towards women and children in the Muslim world. We first met Yasmin at the Seattle Atheist Church, a community organization unlike any we'd been to before. Atheists, agnostics, skeptics, Free thinkers, whatever you like to call yourselves, you are welcome here. The Seattle Atheist Church was founded on the principles of scientific naturalism and secular ethics, which commits us, on the one hand, to reason and evidence-based thinking, and, on the other, to compassion for our fellow humans. The Seattle Atheist Church invited Yasmin to speak because she shares these values. And yet, she is often attacked as a bigot because of her activism against fundamentalist Islam and her forceful rejection of the hijab as a tool of oppression. This no doubt led that evening's host, Jack Thompson, to note that the Seattle Atheist Church stands firmly against all forms of racism and racial supremacy, against misogyny, and unequivocally against anti-Muslim bigotry. Truth claims are attempted here, and we stand ready to revise our thinking in light of new information. 
It's with that very spirit that we stepped into this field of cultural landmines when we interviewed Yasmin after her talk. And we did so with real trepidation. For just talking about these issues can draw accusations of Islamophobia. But as important as it is to prevent discrimination and harassment, it is equally important in a free society to protect the right to critique ideologies, so long as you don't cross the line into condemning individuals who, wittingly or through coercion, subscribe to beliefs you disagree with. That's a line President Trump has had no problems crossing, and it's arguably emboldened anti-Muslim sentiment the last four years. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. But if the political right has been more openly hostile to Muslims, the left has been increasingly hostile to Western ideals when they conflict with Islamic fundamentalism. Most recently, this cultural battle has erupted on French soil with deadly consequences. On October 29, 2020, three people were stabbed to death at Notre Dame, one of them nearly beheaded. The attacker endlessly repeated Allahu Akbar. This was on the heels of the October 16th murder of Samuel Patty, a school teacher in the suburbs of Paris. After teaching his students about free speech and the Charlie Hebdo attacks of 2015, and showing one of the cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad that had motivated those attacks, he was beheaded by one of his students. And of course, these attacks were preceded by the 2016 truck attack in Nice that killed 86, and the November 2015 Paris attacks, where coordinated shootings killed 130 people. And the Charlie Hebdo attack before that, where two Islamic terrorists claiming affiliation with Al-Qaeda killed 11 and injured 12 at the offices of the French satirical newspaper before killing six more French citizens during their escape. That very day, on January 7, 2015, the New York Times editorial board published a piece saying, There are some who will say that Charlie Hebdo tempted the ire of Islamists one too many times, as if cold-blooded murder is the price to pay for putting out a magazine. The massacre was motivated by hate. It is absurd to suggest that the way to avoid terrorist attacks is to let the terrorists dictate standards in a democracy. In the wake of the attack, the phrase Je suis Charlie went viral over social media and within two days had become one of the most widespread hashtags in Twitter history. But after four years of Trump, the New York Times and many left-leaning media sources reacted very differently to the recent beheadings in France. While French President Emmanuel Macron condemned the attacks and the Islamist ideology behind them, he found little solidarity abroad. The New York Times ran an opinion piece entitled, Is France Fueling Muslim Terrorism by Trying to Prevent It? The Financial Times ran with, Macron's war on Islamic separatism only divides France further. Many on the left, so wary of Islamophobia, seem to place more blame on France's failure of integration than on the radical ideology that led these young men to decapitate people. 
What happened to Je suis Charlie? To defending freedom of speech? The rights of women? The failures of French integration result in part from a firm stance by the French government against allowing Islamist enclaves to indoctrinate youth against French laws and ideals and isolate women as second-class citizens. In Macron's words, we believe in the Enlightenment and women have the same rights as men. People who think otherwise, let them do it somewhere else, not on French soil. That speech in particular moved Yasmin Mohammed, whose childhood was deeply impacted by Islamic separatism in Canada. She tweeted back to him, I'm the little girl who is not protected by my country. I stand with Macron. In a lot of ways, her current critiques of fundamentalist Islam are like a life ring thrown out to that young girl she was. At the age of nine, I was fitted with my first hijab which I was now required to wear. I hated it instantly. Gone were all my clothes. Pants were no longer allowed. Now I was to cover every inch of my body but my face and hands. This was the moment that the final nail was hammered into the coffin of my childhood. That's from Yasmin's book, Unveiled. She's talking about how her young life transformed overnight, when her mother became the second wife of a fundamentalist Egyptian man. Even though I was living in Canada, my mother had not even been raised like this in Egypt. In my mother's day, women didn't wear hijab, people would drink, and Islam was as casual of religion as Christianity is for Christians today. Not for Munir, her new stepfather. He whips the soles of my feet. The soles of my feet are a preferred spot as the scars will remain hidden from teachers. I'm six years old, and this is my punishment for not correctly memorizing surahs, chapters, from the Qur'an. All this pain is nothing, I'm assured, compared to the fire of hell if I do not memorize. He led me to the garage, where he tied my wrists together behind my back. He bound my ankles together with rope. In that state, I was hung upside down from a hook that he used to hang the Eid lamb. But Yasmin's childhood was scarred by more than extreme physical punishment. Fourth grade was the year I told my mother that her husband was molesting me. I was too young to understand what he was even doing or why, and I was too scared not to do exactly as I was told. My daydreams of being adopted or escaping turned to nightmares where I would stab him and slice off his penis. Can you blame her for wanting to escape? There was one ray of hope, a friendly teacher at her school. What happened was when I was 12 years old, one of my teachers asked me if I was okay because he could see that I was depressed. And so... I told him everything, and he contacted the police. The police contacted child services. It went to family court. But it was her word against her stepfather's, and the court didn't believe her accusations of molestation. Regarding the physical punishment... In the end, the judge said, that's your family, and they're from a different culture, and that's how their culture chooses to discipline their children, so... Hang on, he was like, 
it's okay for you to be hung upside down and whipped. Yep. Because who is he to judge (laughs) a different culture's choice of how they're going to discipline their kids? It's this kind of perverse tolerance that Macron's government is pushing against in France because they believe the welfare of women and children overrides religious and cultural freedom. But the U.S. and Canada have weighted the scales in the opposite direction. And that enrages me because as a child, what I was hearing from that judge was, you happen to have been born to the wrong ethnicity. Sorry. If your parents were from Germany or from Sweden or from France, then I would have protected you. Mm -hmm. But your parents happen to be from Egypt, so sorry. You're going to have to just endure. It's this logical knot that I think we get into, especially in the U.S., because freedom of religion is so deeply embedded in our national psyche. Exactly. I totally support and agree with freedom of religion, but we need to have boundaries. Where do we say you can practice your religious freedom up until it reaches these points where things are now illegal? Now you are hurting a child. I think that we know what the lines are, but we change the lines for certain groups of people. So if this was a blonde, blue-eyed mother cut out the clitoris of her daughter, that woman would be behind bars. But because she's Somali, she doesn't get the same kind of treatment. So in their earnest effort to be supportive and inclusive, they're actually being viciously racist because now you're not protecting the Somali girl and you are protecting the blonde girl. A lot of people think these kinds of things happen, you know, in Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia or Iraq or whatever, but they don't think that it's happening in their own backyards. But it really is. And unfortunately, a lot of these girls and women are getting ignored by our law enforcement because they always end up getting smeared with things like Islamophobia. But then some really dangerous things happen because of that. There's a a documentary out about a woman named Benaz, and she was in the UK, and the documentary is called Benaz, A Love Story. And it tells the story of how she went to the police five different times, telling them, my father wants to kill me. My father and my cousins and my uncles, they're talking about it. I can feel it. I just know it. Five times she went to the police and they didn't take her seriously. She just wanted a happy life. She wanted, you know, a family. People following me at any time, if anything happens to me, it's them. This Emmy-winning film by Dia Khan tells the story of how an Iraqi-born girl living in London was forced into an arranged marriage at 17 by her Muslim family, how her new husband beat and raped her, and how she tried to divorce him and then took a lover, which led her father to plan and orchestrate an honor killing. And in the end, they found her chopped up in a refrigerator in her parents' backyard. Oh, my God. That's just one out of, like, when you watch that documentary, at the very end of it, it's just like this long line of faces and names, faces and names, faces and names of different women that have also met similar ends. Honor killings may be the most extreme form of violence directed at women in the name of Islamic fundamentalism. But in the context of the Muslim world, these incidents are just the most extreme data points 
in a long litany of daily oppressions women face. Yasmin spent over a decade of her life living in Muslim-majority countries, first when she was seven for a spell, and again just after she graduated high school. While Yasmin's non-Muslim friends were applying to college or traveling for their gap year, she was left behind in Egypt with her mother's twin sister, in the hopes that a suitable husband could be found to keep her in line. When Yasmin tried to object, her mother went off. I pissed you out. Do you hear me? You are my urine. I excreted you. You have no right to question me. You are nothing. If Yasmin felt like a piece of property under her stepfather's rule in Canada, living in Egypt showed her how an entire society, shaped by fundamentalist doctrine, could box her in to an even greater degree. So, with girls, everything that you do is monitored. There's like this, this psychotic thing around a girl's virginity. So you can't ride a bicycle lest you break your hymen, right? You can't run too fast, <laughs> honestly. You can't uh, ride a horse. Like, it's just this All lest you break fear. your hymen. All lest you break your hymen. <laughs> it's wow. just, yeah. it's like this constant fear that you have to keep her protected, wrapped up in bubble wrap until you're ready to pass her on to her husband, then it's his right to do with you what he wants at that point. All you have to know in life is that you have to please your husband and make him happy. That's it. That's your one rule. And that includes, of course, making plenty of babies and creating a, a larger community of Muslims. One of the things I talk about in the book is the word aib, which means shame. And girls are constantly being told that. In every Muslim-majority country, girls are getting the word shame spat at them constantly, all day long, in all different languages. For what? Like For what everything. kinds of things? Don't laugh too loud. Don't smile too much. Don't walk too fast. Your body is going to jiggle. Don't sit like that. Be more ladylike. Just everything you do— in in Islam, there's a thing called aura, which is basically like private parts. A girl's entire being is considered aura, even her voice. Wow. Mm. So everything about you is sexualized and also private. So you're always, you have always have to keep yourself small and never look a man in the eyes and just always keep your head down. Can I ask you how that plays out with men? Because in any of these questions of misogyny and patriarchal societies, I find that the men are just as often indoctrinated into the harmful ideas and are socially coerced in ways that enforce the whole system as well. So there's a real emphasis on like macho, aggressive. That's how they want men to be. And if a man isn't fully aggressive, to the women in his family, then he's emasculated. Like I mentioned yesterday, somebody showed me a billboard in Saudi Arabia that said, you can tell the strength of character of a man by how covered up his women are. And so those messages are constant. When your brain is not fully developed, but your body is fully developed as a male, like full of aggression 
full of testosterone. That's the perfect time to grab these boys and get them into this system. Cover all the women up in black, but then tell this man, but you'll get 72 virgins with white skin and breasts like pomegranates if you go kill all the non-Muslims you can find. And then these idiots will go and do that. Because if you're a jihadi, you're like the best of people. This is a global problem. Cultures that treat women as second-class citizens so often empower a toxic kind of masculinity as well. In the West, that manifests in the gender wage gap on the one side and Harvey Weinstein's on the other. But when the oppression of women is draconian, when the subjugation is overwhelming, it's no coincidence that the masculinity of a culture tends to be equally extreme. What Yasmin has witnessed firsthand is how the myriad ways that Muslim women are oppressed sits on a spectrum that includes grand acts of terrorism done in the name of Islamic fundamentalism. And when we say firsthand, we mean firsthand. When I was older, after I graduated from high school, I was forced into a marriage with a man that my family thought would be strong enough to control me. His name is Sam Marzouk. He's a uh, he's an Egyptian terrorist. He's actually a member of Al Qaeda, and uh, he had been working with Bin Laden for years before I met him. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. When Yasmin Mohammed returned home to Canada from Egypt, she was forced by her mother into an arranged marriage with a man named Assam Marzouk at the age of 21. Like many young Muslim women, she had no choice. Her mother's trump card was hell. In her book, Unveiled, she recalls her mother's words. I promise you, you will burn in hell for eternity. If you do not marry him, I will never let you set one foot in heaven. As a true believer in the afterlife, that threat was enough to compel Yasmin to submit. Her marriage ceremony was, to put it mildly, unromantic. The imam asked the prescribed questions. My consent was not necessary. Silence is consent according to Islamic law. And within minutes, I was his wife, his property. Yasmin had no idea at this point that her husband was involved in terrorist activities. She had far more pressing concerns. She had been treated like property by her stepfather. And now, she was the property of Assam. Under his rule, the hijab wasn't enough. She was required to wear the niqab, which covered her entire body, leaving only a slit for her eyes. Covering yourself head to toe in black, I cannot express how that diminishes your humanity. 
You can't hear properly. You can't see properly. You can't smell properly. You can't touch because you're wearing gloves. You can't interact with people. Like you are like a ghost. You can see people, but they can't see you. Little children are scared of you. It's just the most effective way to reduce somebody to nothing. In a lot of ways, it's typical like abusive relationship 101, right? You make the person isolated. You remove any connection to anybody that can help them or support them. You reduce their self-esteem to nothing so that they feel that they can't survive without you. But then there's extra layers of you feeling like if you don't accept him beating me, for example, that is sanctioned by Allah. In the Quran, chapter 4, verse 34, it instructs men, if you fear arrogance or disobedience from your wives, beat them. Chapter 4, verse 34 of the Quran is controversial. Progressive reformist Muslims interpret it metaphorically as rebuke or say that the beating should be so light as to not leave a mark. They emphasize other passages in the Quran that advise things like, admonish your wives with kindness. Nonetheless, the passage uses the verb to strike. And in a fundamentalist household, that's interpreted literally. So for me, as just a mere human, to complain about something that the Almighty Allah has sanctioned is inconceivable, right? Like, who do you think you are? And so you genuinely do not feel like there is any way out of this. Even in death, I couldn't escape him. Because in death, a man gets to choose which wives he wants to have with him if he goes to heaven. The stakes were raised when Yasmin found herself pregnant. She now had something else besides herself to fight for. It changed everything. There's something inexplicable about when you have a child. It's just this natural desire to protect and this love comes from you didn't even know that you had the ability to love another human being to this extent. It, it just appears. That's what propelled me to find a way out of that world. I mean, it helped that her dad and my mom were talking about when they would take her to Egypt to get FGM performed on her. That is female genital mutilation, which many fundamentalists in Egypt see as a religious requirement. According to UNICEF, 90% of Egyptian women are subjected to some form of FGM. Here's how Yasmin described this moment in her book. Assam approached her and asked, Is she cleaned? Yes, I just gave her a bath, I said. No, I mean, is she fixed? And then I understood. He wanted to take a razor blade and mutilate my tiny little miracle. There's a ticking clock and there's an actual threat. So it's not just like this idea of like, oh, I want to protect you. But it's like, no, I literally have to protect you. These people want to cut you with a razor. 
Her opportunity came unexpectedly. Assam was out of the house one day when her mother started coughing up blood. Yasmin called 911. She recounts in Unveiled. When the ambulance arrived to pick her up, I hesitated. I'd never left the house without him before. Was I allowed to go with her? Would I get in trouble? Sitting in the waiting room with her infant while her mother was being treated, a man and a woman approached her. Are you Yasmin? The woman asked me gently, almost whispering. We're from CSIS. Yasmin was confused. Was that a department of the hospital? No. CSIS, they explained, was the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, like the CIA. We've been wanting to speak to you for a long time, but we could never get you alone. She explained to me that I was married to an Al-Qaeda member. I had no idea what that meant. Then she asked me if I'd ever heard the name Osama bin Laden. They told her that Egypt had a warrant out for Assam's arrest. She went home in a state of shock and fear. But she had no easy way to escape, especially when she found out that she was pregnant again. That didn't stop Assam from physically abusing her. After one beating, in which he had repeatedly kicked her in the back as she lay on the floor, she was told by an ultrasound technician that she needed to see a doctor immediately. Only to learn. My baby did not have a heartbeat. I was carrying a dead baby. After getting a DNC, she asked her husband permission to stay at her mother's for a week to recover. This was her chance. At her first opportunity, she found a lawyer in the phone book and dashed out to make arrangements for a divorce, full custody, and a restraining order. Assam was furious, and he refused to sign. Without his consent, the divorce would take a year to become legal under Canadian law. Yasmin lived in a dreadful limbo for that time. I never left the apartment at all for fear that he might be lurking around a corner. He promised to cut my face so that I would be so ugly that no man would ever want to look at me, let alone touch me. But worse than the fear of violence was the divine threat. At this point, Yasmin still believed. When I got a Canadian divorce from him, he would tell me, go ahead, get your stupid piece of paper. It's not going to stop me. Allah doesn't care about that piece of paper, because when I reach the top levels of heaven, I'll request that you be my wife. You can't escape me, because I'm going to have you for eternity to do whatever I want with you. And I believed in all of this, and what he was telling me made sense. So I really felt like, well, at least I'll get a few years on earth to live happily and away from him, knowing that terrified but absolutely believing that when I died, he would get to control me again. Eventually, CSIS contacted her again and asked her to verify a photo. It was Assam, behind bars, his face full of rage. Assam had been arrested and imprisoned in Egypt. 
That's when Yasmin learned Assam was the contact point for bin Laden's terrorist cell in Canada. Not only that, he had played a pivotal role in the 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania that left over 200 dead. With Assam imprisoned, Yasmin was technically free of him. But she didn't feel free, for she was still in the grip of the ideology he had used to control her. She still feared the fires of hell, and she still wore the niqab. When you finally were out and on your own, this was the first time that you had the opportunity to exercise a number of intellectual muscles, not to mention just survival skills, that had been denied you your entire life. And like, I was pretty not capable coming out of just four years of prison. And you were alone with a baby, never having had freedom of movement or thought in your entire life. How did you do that? Yeah, it was terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I wish there was Google in those days. It would have made such a difference. Because I didn't know anything. And I didn't even know what I didn't know. I didn't know the first thing about even, like, how to ride a bus. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, just everything was brand new. And it was most terrifying with my daughter because— I mean, I would do the stupidest thing. I literally took milk and put it in the bottle because I'm like, babies drink milk in a bottle. Like, <laughs> I, did, I didn't know. I'm like, here I am giving her 2% milk. As terrifying as it was and as difficult as it was and as many mistakes as I made, the joys totally were way more overpowering. The unexpected joys are just countless, innumerable. The joy of opening the door and stepping out whenever you want to. Mm. The joy of waking up in the morning and putting whatever clothes you want on your own body. Those little things that people don't even think about, those are just miracles. And that's something that I try so hard to express to people that are on the fence. So there are like millions of People that are ex-Muslims but are living as Muslims, and a lot of women especially. So they'll wake up in the morning, they'll put the hijab on, they'll do their, you know, look like a Muslim. Meanwhile, inside, they're screaming. It's hard to express to them that no matter how difficult it is for you to leave. I mean, I left a jihadi husband with a daughter who was, you know, a, a toddler at the time. I had a high school education. All of the difficulties that I went through, I was so much happier than living a double life. Mm. There's absolutely no price that you can put on your freedom. It's worth it. Just to be able to feel the wind on your face, to feel the sun on your face, to be able to touch things with your fingers as opposed to with gloves on, to be able to smell the air and to hear properly, and to make eye contact with people. (laughs) What I try to convince people to do is to just make a plan and make sure that you're safe, 
But don't just accept your fate because you will eventually lose your mind. Yasmin slowly recovered a sense of agency. And one of her most important decisions was to attend university, where she saw firsthand the options open to her and finally had the distance to start looking at her beliefs, how she'd come to them, whether they were forced upon her, and whether she wanted to keep them. It's like a slow drip of poison, the indoctrination, right? And so you eventually just give up and you say, well, I guess that's it then. Happiness isn't for me. Love isn't for me. Joy isn't for me. This is the life that I'm going to have to live. And you forget to want those things. You stop thinking about it and you just accept. Yasmin had not only learned to be powerless, she'd learned through years of coercion to actively shun those who might help her see her own power. So they're teaching me to hate non-Muslims and they're evil and they hate you and they want you dead and we have to kill them back. But then I kept on meeting people who were genuinely helping me in ways my own family never even helped me, were caring about me in ways my own family never cared about me. Complete strangers sometimes. So enough of that was happening for me to finally one day realize, wait a minute, I don't think that was true. Hmm. Yasmin had been denied the joy of questioning, of critical thinking, of curiosity for decades. And once she finally discovered it, she was intoxicated. That's why I was almost like drunk on it when I went to university. I was like, what is this? <laughs> Parts of my brain were like, I loved it. I was so excited about being able to question things and to look at things from different perspectives. and You're weirdly denied ignorance, like one of the most beautiful things about the spirit of inquiry is not knowing something and, and reveling in the fact that here is a mystery we don't know the answer to. Right. But if this book has all the answers, you don't get to enjoy not knowing something. So beautifully put. Yes, absolutely. That mystery, that awe, you never have any mystery or awe. It's like there's a door there and I'd never seen it before. It was you know, unimaginable to me. I just couldn't believe that I actually had the power to walk away. But then making that happen was a slow process because there's the physical, actual, real life. How am I going to do this? How am I going to survive? What steps am I going to take? The punishment for leaving Islam is execution. So you have to be very quiet. And I didn't want anybody from my past to know where I was now, like my daughter and I both changed our names and we moved cities and we just wanted to make sure that we weren't leaving any breadcrumbs. So that meant that I lost all contact with everybody that I'd ever known, essentially, and started from scratch and lived a very quiet life until just uh, a few years ago. Having finally walked through that door, having pulled up the peg that she'd been shackled to for so long, Yasmin started to see the indoctrination of Muslim women with clear eyes. You know, people always say like, oh, Muslim women, they're not complaining. They're just living. They're fine. And I'm like, they're human beings. Like, if they try to fight, they're going to be imprisoned or killed or 
disposed of by their family members. There could be honor killings, honor violence. Like, it's such a high price to pay to fight. And that's why I think that this whole separation of mosque and state is so important. I mean, the internet is helping them to realize it, but they're still being controlled by the Sharia in the governments. Because you can overcome the control of your family, you can overcome the control of your community, but you can't overcome the control of your government. If you're going to be thrown in prison for saying something against the prophet or against a law, then you can't overcome that. Coming from our liberal Western democracy bubble, hearing Yasmin talk about the Muslim world is shocking and immediately conjures the voices of progressives who say things like, Islam is a religion of peace, and point to the fact that there are nearly two billion Muslims in the world and very, very few of them are terrorists. Which is absolutely true. It's also true that if you focus exclusively on the worst examples, you end up slandering all other Muslims by association. But what does the data actually show? How common is Yasmin's experience of oppression and abuse in the Muslim world? And how valid were her fears about leaving the religion? So the best research we have is Pew Research, and it goes across the Muslim world and asks questions like, should people be killed for leaving Islam? Are people immoral if they are gay? Do you want Sharia to be the law of the land? All sorts of questions. And the numbers are not encouraging. According to Pew, in countries across South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, and the Middle East, North Africa region, most favor making Sharia their country's official legal code. That is, they prefer an Islamic theocracy. 99% in Afghanistan, 84% in Pakistan, 91% in Iraq. In many of these countries, there is overwhelming support for stoning as a punishment for adultery. In Egypt, 86% of those who favor Sharia think execution is the appropriate punishment for apostates. In Jordan, it's 82%. If the Pew numbers are accurate, depending on how you calculate population, there are anywhere from 30 to 60 million people in Egypt alone who support executing those who leave Islam, who convert or become atheist. It's less extreme in other parts of the world. Of the 225 million Muslims in Indonesia, only 13% support the death penalty for apostasy, but that's still tens of millions of people. There's less robust data for the West, but we know there are an estimated 3.45 million Muslims in the United States. And if just 1% of them align with the majorities of Egypt or Pakistan, that's 345,000 people, roughly the population of Cleveland, who support killing apostates. I think people want to believe that, like, the Westboro Baptist Church is this little sliver of Christianity and Al-Qaeda is this little sliver of the Muslim world, and they're just equivalent. And that is so incredibly not true. Like, the Westboro Baptist Church literally is a small sliver. It's one family. It's, like, less than 100 people. But Muslims are 1.6 billion. 
So even if you're just talking about 1% or 2%, that's millions of people. That's Mm -hmm. concerning. What do you think about parallels to the other Abrahamic religions, all those ways that women are second-class citizens in those related religions? I definitely see the parallels, but I think that the difference is that there are Islamic theocracies. Islam is in the government in so many countries. And that's why in 15 Muslim-majority countries, you can be killed for being a member of the LGBT community. You can be killed for deciding that you want to leave Islam. There are no Christian-majority nations that do that. But in the Islamic communities, the vast majority are conservative, if not fundamentalist, Muslims. And just a tiny sliver are open-minded, liberal, free-thinking Muslims. And those are the people that we need to hold hands with Mm. and support and empower and help them change their countries from within. But unfortunately, we are supporting the other side. It was seeing that strange inversion of reasoning that had Western liberals ignoring the free-thinking feminists of the Muslim world and supporting the oppressive fundamentalists instead, all in the name of freedom of religion, that lit an activist fire in Yasmin. But how could she stand up for oppressed women around the world if she hadn't yet stood up for herself? Her horizons were widening. She was even removing her hijab at school, around friends. But she had yet to unveil herself in front of the woman who had been the principal force of her oppression for decades. The woman who had delivered her to the subjugation of one man and then another. Her own mother. Yasmin's mother was the final roadblock on her path to leaving Islam. But before getting into that confrontation, it's worth taking a moment to appreciate the cognitive difficulty of her slow journey into atheism and how it compares to others. My personal journey to atheism was largely philosophical and arose out of scientific curiosity and a commitment to evidence-based thinking. Amanda's was a bit more traumatic. What your household experience reminded me of was prison. In prison, every single day, you do not get to decide. You are a thing, and you have no control over your life. You are trapped in your small space. And to be suddenly thrust into that space because... People believed crazy things about me and about what the truth of reality was. (sighs) My sort of journey into atheism that arose from this was realizing that there should be reasons for people to believe something. And if there isn't a reason for you to believe something, then not only is it not just a sort of benign whatever, believe what you want to believe, like there are consequences to believing something, even though you don't have reason to believe in it. 
And I felt like your descriptions of like just being there and like every day getting told who you are and what your worth is was like being in prison. Yeah. Yeah. I think that probably the biggest difference between our two stories is that my prison was the slow boil. Like I had always been in it. I didn't really know anything different. I had never made decisions, so I didn't know that that was an option, that people actually make choices. But for you, you went from living a normal life into being thrown into that dungeon so quickly. And it's way worse, of course, but we do in the end share that same journey out of it. It was a long journey for me to get out of it, though, because I was so deeply indoctrinated. Even when I cognitively didn't believe in this being anymore, and I knew it wasn't true, and I knew it was all ridiculous, dangerous fairy tales, I'd still be terrified of burning in hell. Well, I was about to say that, like, I thought it was worse for you, because at the very least— I had the physical bars around me. Like, I knew that this was a situation Mm. that was meant to make me suffer. And my despair had reason. Like, I wasn't crazy for feeling despair. The thing that bothers me about what happened to you is that you were punished for your own despair. And you were made to feel... Like you were wrong and broken and crazy for feeling despair. And the primary source of that gaslighting for Yasmin's entire life was her mother. Coming out to her would have serious consequences. I think that the consequence that most people are surprised about is that your parents will be willing to disown you And actually, in a lot of families, mine included, the parents will feel that it's their duty to kill you. This confrontation was an impactful moment on Yasmin. She spoke of it at the Seattle Atheist Church. And that went on like just this slow unraveling of just wearing it part-time for a few years until Everybody in my life knew I wasn't wearing hijab, except for my mom. She was the only person left who I was keeping it from. And then one day she asked me to drive her to the doctor. And so I said, you know what? Today's the day. This is it. I'm going to go without a hijab on. She also writes about this moment in her book. It did not go well. When her mother saw her uncovered hair, she said, I'm not getting in the car with you, you filthy prostitute. If we were in Egypt, I would have you killed. I should kill you with my bare hands. I won't risk you alive to leave Islam. I will kill you before that happens. You will not drag me down to hell with you. She kind of reacted how I figured she would react, but that I was hoping she wouldn't. Hmm. So I wasn't surprised, but I was really sad. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's still your mom. And you think that there might be just the whisper of a chance that you could be wrong. 
I'm sorry. But I wasn't wrong. And it's kind of like she didn't really have a choice. <laughs> it's so hard to explain. It's like it's like the mother of a Jehovah's Witness baby that needs a blood transfusion. That mom would let her baby die before she let it have a blood transfusion because she really feels like that's what she has to do. Mm-hmm. It's not that she wants to kill her baby, but she's so indoctrinated that she feels like she has to. So although it hurts and it's upsetting and all that, it's kind of logical, you know, if it I have to try and understand where she's coming from, which is hard to do because I'm a mom. Right. You know, the whole story of Abraham almost slaughtering his son. Mm-hmm. That's why they slaughter a sheep every year for Eid. It's to remember that story. So it's this constant reminder that you have to be so willing to please Allah that you have to be willing to kill your child. And for my mom, it's really that she's not willing to put her eternity on the line. This is how she was explaining it to me. Like She's a a true believer. She's a true believer. And I'm not going to put myself in danger of burning in hell for eternity. And if all that stuff was real, it's a totally logical thing for her to do. Exactly. Of course, it's not real. (laughs) It's not real. (laughs) It's not at all. But yeah, that's how she, she's so convinced that it's all real. Therefore, it makes sense in her mind. Yasmin had no chance of convincing her mother. But she was beginning to realize that her voice may be able to move the needle for others. It finally clicked when she saw an episode of Real Time with Bill Maher, featuring Sam Harris and Ben Affleck. In that episode, basically, Bill Maher and Sam Harris were trying to talk to Ben Affleck about the problems in the religion of Islam. When you want to talk about the treatment of women and homosexuals and free thinkers and public intellectuals in the Muslim world, uh, I would argue that liberals have failed us. Although they were trying to criticize the ideology of Islam, Ben kept on acting as if they were being bigoted towards Muslim people. But why are you so hostile about this It's it's gross. It's racist. But it's so nice. It's it's like saying you're a shifty Jew. Here's how she described this moment of inspiration during her lecture at the Seattle Atheist Church. That was the day I decided to speak out because I agreed with everything that Bill and Sam were saying. And everybody attacked them the next day but they got attacked for being white American men. Nobody said anything about their arguments. What about the points that they were making? Nobody even addressed them. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna be a brown Arab woman and I'm gonna say the exact same thing these men are saying. And now what? Now you're gonna have to engage with the actual argument because you can't you know, attack my immutable characteristics. So Yasmin started writing her book and posting chapters online. And then I was getting contacted by people everywhere. Sudan, Somalia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Egypt, like you name it. And, you know, at the time there was people like in Saudi Arabia being arrested. In Bangladesh, people were being hacked to death in the streets. So it was at that time when people started basically looking to me to be their voice 
because they're in situations where they could not speak. And that's when I started to kind of feel ashamed of myself. I'm like, well, here I am living in a free democratic nation. I felt compelled to put myself out there, put my face and my name and everything and start to get more involved as an activist. Yasmin founded an organization called Free Hearts, Free Minds that supports ex-Muslims living in Muslim-majority countries where the punishment for apostasy is death. And her activist work has, in a way, helped her recover from her own trauma. What does your past feel like for you? Does it feel like another life? Is it a bad dream? Is it right here with you? Up until I wrote the book, everything was buried in a box with a lock on it, and it was far back in my mind. And I actively chose to go there and unlock the box and open it up, right? Like, as difficult as it was, it was actually really cathartic. It's not a secret anymore. Like, it's not hidden in there anymore. It's been cleaned out Mm -hmm. as much as I can clean it out. That's really helpful. And also, more than anything, Helping other people heals me. It was my daughter buying her a Barbie dream house, allowing her to choose what clothes she wanted to wear. Like every little step with my daughter, you know, her introducing me to her first boyfriend and me being welcoming and asking him to stay for dinner and like things that were just inconceivable for myself growing up. All of that healed me. It was constant healing, 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 giving her the things that I never had. I think that I succeeded in my goal of being a full human being before she was able to know me as the broken woman I was when I had her. But yeah, I wanted her to be able to see something different because all I'd ever seen were women that were uneducated, subservient wives making babies. That was the only examples I ever had in my family and in my community. And now helping people with my organization, that's so rewarding now. Like I'm even past the healing onto the rewarding. Right. So it's so great to be able to reach back and help people that are living in situations that are so familiar to you. You know all about this. This is exactly what you do. I do know exactly what that's like. But as rewarding as that work can be, it also takes an emotional toll, for it draws fire in your direction. Yasmin, like other ex-Muslim activists, has received a barrage of online hate for her advocacy against the hijab in particular. And not just from Muslims, but from non-Muslim progressives who frame any criticism of the ideology as bigotry. This is notable compared to the sympathy often directed at ex-cultists, ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, or even those who've defected from the Westboro Baptist Church, who publicly decry the oppressions and abuses of their former ideologies. Why is the hijab and the emancipation of women from the hijab such a controversial issue? I'd love to know. (laughs) (laughs) It shouldn't be a controversial issue in the West because we've been through these fights. Feminism is not a brand new idea here. Here we're on our fourth wave of feminism. And in many parts of the world, the first ripples of feminism are just starting to bubble up. 
And so over there, I can give you a million reasons why it's such a big deal. That removing this cloth off my head is what got my mother to threaten to kill me. Like, Mm. that's how much it means to them to control the women in their families. In Saudi Arabia, a few years ago, there was a girls' school that was on fire. And they wouldn't allow the firefighters to go in and put the fire out because the girls weren't covered. Wow. So girls burned to death in that school as their parents were standing outside watching. That's the level of psychosis when it comes to hijab. But it shouldn't be like that here. Over here, we know better, right? The problem is rapists, not what she's wearing, not how much she's had to drink, not anything else. The problem is he is a criminal. But for some reason, all of that messaging just gets forgotten and ignored when it comes to Muslim women. Then somehow the hijab is empowering and feminist. Well, how did that happen? Would it be empowering and feminist for you to wear it? No, it wouldn't. So why is it empowering and feminist for this woman? She's not subhuman. She's not a completely different species. She's no different than you or I. And she also wants her freedom. She also wants her autonomy. I don't understand why we are endorsing modesty culture, purity culture, rape culture, by putting this tool of misogyny on advertisements or on the cover of magazines. The hijab has exploded into the media landscape in the last few years, driven by, depending on who you ask, the warmth of diversity and inclusivity or cold corporate opportunism. From the Olympics to professional football, women are kicking, spiking, and playing in hijab. Nike wants a slice of the growing market with its new product, a hijab for female athletes. Then Sports Illustrated made a splash. Halima Aden is changing the game and making history as the first hijab-wearing model to wear a burkini in Sports Illustrated's legendary swimsuit issue. The Nike hijab and Sports Illustrated burkini are largely seen as barrier-smashing milestones of diversity. And to be sure, It means that Muslim women are becoming more visible and more able to participate in activities that were previously forbidden them, which is a good thing. But at what cost? They're trying to make money. And if they put a a Nike swoosh on a hijab and they get celebrated for it and people are thinking, ooh, yay, that's really woke, fantastic. But I think that the problem here is that you're supporting religion. You're supporting a fundamentalist ideology. What do you say to the Muslim women who say, you know, I'm just embracing my culture and I'm not letting the imperialists tell me who I am? And Well, what's interesting is a common thing that's happening now is that people are starting to recognize Islamic imperialism, how Islam— went across the planet and completely erased the cultures that were there before it. And you can see it happening in real time. In Indonesia, it's happening today. In Syria, I don't know if you were following when ISIS was trying to blow up all of the ancient artifacts in Palmyra. Oh, totally. That's what they do. The reason why ISIS was trying to blow those up is because those are pre-Islamic. Anything pre-Islamic needs to go. 
A lot of Muslim women, in fact, the majority of Muslim women in America don't wear hijab. So when they're putting the hijab all over everything, you're only supporting a segment of the Muslim population, the fundamentalists. Hmm. You're ignoring all of the liberal, open-minded Muslim women who are feminists and who don't want to wear this tool of modesty culture. So that's no different than them supporting a Hasidic Jewish practice of making women shave their heads when they get married. It's no different than supporting Mormon underwear. So that's the disconnect, I think. They're not realizing that this is not cultural clothing. What culture? Over 60 Muslim-majority countries have women in them that wear hijab. And these women don't share a culture in the least. They don't share language, food, nothing. They share a religion. You're now supporting a religion when you do that. And they would never support evangelical Christians. They would never support Hasidic Jews. So why are you supporting fundamentalist Muslims? They are actually taking an active role when they slap their logo on this piece of cloth that gets women killed, you have now chosen a side in this fight. It's the same side the judge chose when he refused to protect Yasmin from child abuse out of deference to her family's cultural and religious practices. But with the hijab, it's more than perverse tolerance. For Yasmin, it's perverse celebration, reframing a tool of sexist oppression as a symbol of female empowerment. That's partly why she started No Hijab Day. She spoke about it at the Seattle Atheist Church. And so I wanted to get everybody aware of this campaign that we have going on, which is how freeing your head can free your mind. This was in response to World Hijab Day, a movement that sets up booths in colleges and workplaces and encourages non-Muslim women to wear the hijab for a day. So as a response to that, I wanted to create a day where we could celebrate women who do not want to wear hijab, the women who have removed their hijabs and who have gone through such negativity in making that decision about what they want to put on their own bodies. I got the impression from the Seattle Atheist Church when we were in there is everyone was totally on board and like stood with you and everything that you said resonated. And yet there was this like tentativeness. There was this feeling of like, am I allowed to agree with Yasmin? And I was wondering, is that a common response? Very common. (laughs) (laughs) Very common. I get emails and private messages all the time from people that you would know that are telling me, I support you and I'm behind you, but they would never publicly say anything. And I, I, I don't know if I'm being overly optimistic, but I feel like the tides are, are kind of turning a little bit. This is honestly scary territory to get into. I'm fully expecting to be called an Islamophobe just for having Yasmin on the podcast and for asking the questions we've been asking. But if you care about female empowerment and equal rights, if you care about freeing women from abusive relationships and lifelong coercion, How could you not ask these questions? And the most important question of all may be, what makes something a choice? Are these women choosing of their own free will to wear the hijab? 
to wear the niqab, to obey their husband's orders, to mutilate the genitals of their daughters, or threaten them with death if they leave Islam? I know that women here say, free the nipple. That's how much freedom they want, right? But what about free the face? What about free the hair? Women over there matter too. They don't want anything different than what you want, which is just the freedom to choose. Some of them may choose to still wear it, and that's fine as long as they have that freedom, as long as nobody has coerced them into it. So the way you can test if it's a choice is if what if she chooses to take it off? Choice means the choice to put it on and the choice to take it off. And usually this choice is only half of that equation. It doesn't include the other half. So we have to keep that in mind when we hear people telling us it's a choice. That choice didn't just come out of nowhere because nobody who isn't Muslim wakes up in the morning and says, I'm gonna make a choice to cover myself head to toe in black today with just a slit for my eyes. Nobody would ever make that choice in a vacuum. You make that choice because you've been coerced into it. It's hard to argue with giving people true freedom of choice, especially when you know what it's like to have your freedom stripped from you, whether by a thin black veil or a wall of barbed wire. I don't think that we should be pushing our opinion or our values, but I think that we should be pushing to allow people the freedom to choose. Mm. Because what's happening now is that Islamic law, Sharia, is controlling people. And in fact, if they were to say something, then they would be ostracized or maybe even imprisoned. So they cannot speak up for the things that are important to them. But here in the West, we can speak up. We can choose to stand with France, with ex-Muslims and reformist Muslims, and defend the equality of women the world over. Or we can give deference to fundamentalist ideology that would keep them subjugated. I lived in Muslim-majority countries, and I have absolutely not a shadow of a doubt in my mind that if they were allowed the choice, if they were allowed freedom, they would fucking take it. Join us next time as we sit down with John Ronson, best-selling author of The Psychopath Test, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and host of the Last Days of August podcast to talk about his narrow escape from the henchmen of the secret rulers of the world. So come on, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. At KnoxRobinson.com. And subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of Labyrinths. This episode was written by us. Edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. be like help us out give us five stars no if you like this episode give us a five-star review we could use it (laughs) (laughs) don't hate us
Captain's Log, Stardate 89361.5. We've encountered a fascinating alien civilization. The people of Patreon Prime are humanoid in appearance, but possess vastly greater degrees of nuance, compassion, and intelligence than any race we have so far encountered. But what is perhaps most striking is their generosity. Captain, the warp core is going critical. Warning. Divert all energy to patreon.com slash Robinson. 